When the prairies were plowed and the forests were felled, and the wheat and logs came to Minneapolis to be ground up or cut up, a lot of men with beards got filthy rich. If they were smart, they took their money to a mansion in Minneapolis, found a tall, thin man in a tan suit with a mustache like wings, and asked him to make something for them, something strange and beautiful. A chair or a table or a whole room in whatever mansion they were building for themselves. Something to show that even here, in the old Northwest, among the lumberjacks and bachelor farmers, there was beauty in the world. And they knew it, these men with beards and bucks. They knew what this man could make, and it was good. It was the Fellowship of Good Things. This is The Object, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today, a story of art on the American frontier, where millionaires were minted overnight and wanted everyone to know they had more than money. They had good taste. It's the Fellowship of Good Things. I'm Tim Gearing. John Bradstreet came wisely in summer, in 1873, when he was 27 and had tuberculosis in Minneapolis, which rarely got above 75 degrees back then was a good place for a frail fellow hoping to dry out his lungs. He came from Rhode Island and could trace his family back to the Mayflower, in fact, to the second governor of America's first permanent colony. And now, in moving to Minnesota, he was a settler himself. There were wolves at the edge of town, wolverines to the north, Laura Ingalls in a sod house to the south, Minneapolis had less than 20 years under its belt and just 13,000 settlers along the Mississippi who cut the logs and ground the flour and lost so many limbs in the process there were six prosthetic cellars down by the river. But the frontier was falling fast and the men in charge of knocking it down were piling up a fortune, plowing it into mansions. The kind of gothic rock piles haunted by canopy beds and velvet drapes and pipe organs, like something out of Dickens or Dracula. It was, as a friend of Bradstreet later recalled, a brutal hideousness of rampant bad taste, abhorrent to the trained and cultivated intelligence. Bradstreet, with his tan suits, his jade cufflinks, his ties made from fine upholstery, was prepared to help. Bradstreet gave the top hat crowd what they wanted at first, or what they thought they wanted. He had been working for a silver maker back east since the Civil War. And in Minneapolis, he opened a furniture shop, the kind that sold canopy beds and velvet drapes, if not pipe organs, to frontier millionaires. Modern Gothic, he called it, and he cashed in. He got into Orientalism, too, the kind of decorative colonialism that flashed around the white people's world on both sides of the Atlantic in the late 1800s. He decorated the city's grand opera house in the style, with plaster elephant heads and Moorish arches. And he decorated his own rooms the same way, at the swankiest boarding house in Minnesota. In a portrait at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, which he helped found in 1883, He's reading the newspaper at home with a riding crop and knee-high boots, among the arches and incense burners, as though he were on safari in a harem. And then he outgrew it, the Gothic, the Oriental, all of it, 
and began creating his own style. Bradstreet went to Japan in 1889. He had obsessed about the country and its style from afar. And now, here it was. All those clean lines and dragons in their natural habitat. He bought wagon loads of stuff, furniture and decor. And when he brought it home, he lived with it and studied it. Learned how it was made. The exotic techniques like bearing wood to age it into strange patterns. Like it had been eaten alive. Until it wasn't exotic anymore. It was his. He bought a mansion of his own. Put a Japanese gate at the entrance. Drew a dragon in the cement below. And built a showroom so big and beautiful it seemed like a museum. And there he put his furniture. Made from wood he had treated to look like it had been buried. Only better. He called it the craft house. And somehow, when he opened it in 1904, despite all the juxtapositions, it worked. Bradstreet's Fellowship of Good Things didn't come out of nowhere. He'd followed the arts and crafts style of simple handmade design, a counterweight to the Industrial Revolution, for most of his career. But now he had something original to show for it. Gustav Stickley, the leader of the arts and crafts movement in America, visited Bradstreet in his craft house soon after it opened in 1904 and came away a believer. Wrote in his magazine how surprised he was to find this beauty in the wilderness. That beauty is not necessarily produced by large expenditure. And that was it. Over the next 10 years, almost every Minnesotan of means would ask Bradstreet to fill their home with good things, to bring it into the fellowship. As far north as Duluth, still surrounded by virgin pines and caribou, where Bradstreet installed the living room of dragons and lotus flowers overlooking Lake Superior, and in the rest of America, too. a bachelor, as it happens, tied to no one and no place, a member of explorers clubs, and in his later years, constantly on a boat. He returned to Japan almost a dozen times. And each time he came back, he seemed even more worldly, if not otherworldly, until his beard and mustache were as pale as his suits until he appeared among the dark wood paneling and beams of his craft house, like a ghost. His ideas grew even more ambitious. He proposed a Japanese temple island in Minneapolis's Lake of the Isles, complete with a pagoda and archway and stone lanterns. As though it were not enough to refine the interior spaces of the frontier, the frontier itself must be altered as well dragged by man's hand into the fellowship. But by then, Minneapolis was no longer the frontier, thanks in no small part to him. In fact, many of his clients had moved to the country, around Lake Minnetonka, to escape the dirty, growing city. And Bradstreet, who had become their friend and tastemaker, often visited them in the clean air. One day in 1905, he was returning home from the lake, driven by a friend's chauffeur. 
a car so big and fast and new that the driver scarcely understood what to do. And on a lonely stretch of mud, the car skidded over an embankment and fell 16 feet. When he died nine years later, in 1914, a Minneapolis newspaper said that if this section of the country is to furnish a name that will be known to the America of 100 years from today, that name is more likely to be that of John Scott Bradstreet than any other. But a hundred years is a long time. The craft house soon closed. The Bradstreet room at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, which housed some of his favorite personal pieces after his death, was soon dismantled. Bradstreet Island was never built in the lake. America, within a decade, would embrace the cheap and personal pleasures of the industrial age and the bitter assertions of white supremacy that Northern Europeans were smarter, better than everyone else. Japan would soon become the enemy. And the fellowship of all good things, which had briefly promised a utopia of global influences in the least likely place, was broken. <laughs>